Praise God. Um, it's good to see everyone today. Nice to see you, to see you nice, as old Brucey used to say. And um, it's great to be sharing our next installment of the Bonafide series, um, Bonafide Faith. Today, we're looking at Bonafide Faith is Humble. And um, it's hardly surprising, really, after um, the verses we looked at last week. Um, real strong talk. I mentioned a while back that James isn't pulling any punches. He's not sparing any blushes. He's going in, as they say, and giving us a, a real lesson in practical Christianity. What does genuine faith in Christ look like fleshed out in practice? And um, the whole issue of just issues, <laughs> the issue of issues was brought up last week with regards to quarrels and fights and so on um, amongst the people. And this is James speaking to the church. This isn't even just a general letter to the population. And I always find it helpful when the Bible deconstructs our romantic notion of church life. Very often we have this sentimental, romantic notion of church life being all wonderful, and if there's any kind of issues, they're always an exception to the norm and so surprising. And, you know, they, they drive us to our knees in prayer and, and, and then everything's fine again and wonderful and dandy. Everybody's the best of friends and we all get along wonderfully. As if. <laughs> Not. And that's what James is saying. Not. There's, there's, there's issues among you. And so, rather dwell on the fact that there are issues, he just starts to unpack it. And we see this general sense of, that there's so many different ways to say it, but in a word it can be easily said, pride. Pride. And in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so, today as we approach our text, we're given consideration to look at what does that mean to me when it comes to the plans that I have for my life, the things that I would like to see happen in my life, and the way that we go about that. Because there can be over-expressions of pride that result in conflict. My opinion is more important than yours. My feelings are more important than yours. And so on and so forth. And these things lead into conflict when people are sharing those sorts of views. But then there are more subtle expressions of pride that we can fall into the trap of being given to. And so let's look at today verses 13 to 17 of James chapter 4, and then I'll pray. Reading from the ESV. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Father God, we come before you with a need, Lord, a need for more of you, a need to be more greatly submitted to you. And um, Lord, we recognize that your word is medicine for our souls. And yet, as with any medicine, it is completely reliant upon how we appropriate it, how we 
take it and apply it to ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us willing hearts today, willing hearts that would be keen to hear from you and ready to submit to you. Help us, Lord, because we have a need, and that need is for more of you. Have your way, Lord, today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you've left uni, finished your course, tremendous aspirations, and you find yourself in a 20-something life crisis, as they're calling it, I think. It seems to be somewhat of a new phenomenon, although it's not a new phenomenon. It's the way in which it's kind of been highlighted, and, and I don't know if it's the social media generation that makes it even more intense. But I hear this phrase, the, the, the 20-something life crisis, and this sense of so many young people leaving education and finding themselves in a place where they just feel lost in the world. What do we do with ourselves? Like, things are not all that I thought they would be. Maybe they were young and idealistic in their uni years and had great expectations only to come out and find things are not all that they seemed, let alone as I had hoped. This text speaks to your soul today if you've ever had those feelings. Or maybe it's that midlife crisis. <laughs> and uh, you know what? I know that the midlife crisis, normally they kind of put it down to be a male thing, right? That, listen, <laughs> that, that normally, normally they, 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 but it is actually very real for both men and women. Am I lying? <laughs> but that sense of hmm heard it all before I've seen it all before you feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> you know I'm kind of at that place in life when I feel like things should be different yeah. but <laughs> But they're not, and they don't actually seem to be changing. Actually, it doesn't feel like at this stage in my life, as I've reached the apex and I'm looking downhill, <laughs> that there's actually much hope, much prospects of change. This text speaks to your soul, if you've ever been in that place. And it's interesting the way that James approaches it. And, you know, James has is, is got his sleeves rolled up, fists clenched, and he's going toe-to-toe with the believers in this dispersed community of Jews, Jewish people who have um, come to faith in Christ. And he says, he rebukes them first and foremost. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make. Come now, he says to them. Hold on a minute. Really? So you're saying, and he he highlights at least four assumptions that they make. We are going to go into such and such a town. Really? You know this for a certainty? And you're going to spend a year there. Hmm, okay. And you're going to actually have opportunity to trade while you're there. Wow. You guys have such futuristic insights. And furthermore, we're not only going to trade, but we're going to make a profit. They say Such assumptions, such self-assurance, such arrogance. And we know it's arrogance because he says it in verse 16. You boast in your arrogance. Such arrogance to think that things are going to go just the way that you intend, just the way that you envisage, just the way that you foresee. 
And yet, tomorrow's not promised to anyone. And furthermore, you have no more power than a steamy vapor. Your life is but a blip on the timeline of human history. Imagine. So, if I were to try and name to you people four generations back in my family, so not my grandmother, but my grandparents' parents, I couldn't tell you one name. Not one name. Now, that's not because... I guess the names are not accessible. I'm sure that if in my lifetime, especially whilst my grandmother was alive, I actually took time to ask and have the interest, I would probably know. And you know that we're not going to be found on Ancestry.com, right? <laughs> like, on a level. There's just some people that that doesn't work for. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> maybe you, bro. Not, not, not my peeps, them, no. And so that's something that is, is, is unknown to me. And it's not as if I feel that my life has been um, deprived by lack of that knowledge. Now, imagine my grandparents' parents, my great-grandparents, could have really felt that they were the best thing since sliced bread. Four generations later, I don't even know their name. And when you think about yourself and your aspirations and your plans and your achievements and everything else, within four generations, it's likely that even your own family won't know your name. Life is but a vapor. Here for a moment, it's like the steam from the kettle. You hear it boiling. You see the steam, you turn around, by the time you look back, it's gone. This is our lives. A blip on the timeline of human history. And so who are we to be so self-assured, so arrogant about what we will or will not do? Especially in those situations when really, truth be told, we have very little control over ourselves, let alone anything else. Let alone anyone else. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We have little power and little sustainability. And so to make such grand claims, to make such grand plans without having the right approach and perspective is a futile arrogance. This is what's being communicated here. Now one of the things we see very much so is that the aspirations being promoted in verse 13 we're going to go into such a town and spend a year and we're going to do trade and we're going to make money, money, make money. <laughs> we're going to do all of these things. And you say, okay, so not only is there a problem with how they're considering themselves, but there's a problem about what they're considering to do. Because it's entirely self-centered. It's t entirely self-focused. So, one, they're ambitions are selfish. Their aspirations are godless. How often do we find ourselves in that type of situation? So, we purpose to do this particular endeavor, follow this course, get these qualifications that's going to equip us to do this particular job, and to be able to excel in this particular field. And in the midst of it, have we really stopped to consider, how does this relate to the glory of God? How is this being pursued with God's pleasure in mind? 
See, ordinarily, we live very compartmentalized lives where we see we have work here, we have family here, we have recreation here, we have um, interests and hobbies here, we have friendships and so on here, and um, leisure pursuits here. And, and these segments of life make up our life, and we don't look for any particular one of them to fulfill us. And, and there's, there's, there's a truth in that. But the mistake we make is that we make God one of those segments. And so we say, okay, so I've got God here in this piece of the pie chart and in this segment, and I've got church and scripture and everything that relates to God. And when it comes to work, I swing around to this part of the pie chart and God is behind me. I've kind of done my duty, fulfilled my, um, my, my responsibilities, or I've, I've given due consideration, at least in my mind, but I have other fish to fry over here. And what we don't appreciate is that God isn't just a piece of the pie. He is the pie. Some of us recognize that God is the pie. But we filled it with all other things. See, Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. And that's basically like saying the A to Z. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And when somebody says A to Z, they don't just mean the first and last letter. They mean everything in between also. If I'm going to give you the A to Z of how to run a computer, I'm not just going to give you the beginning and the end. I'm giving you the full breakdown. Jesus is life itself. And all its fullness. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. And so, maybe there's been a need to step back and consider the pursuits that may have failed us or the disillusionment that you may feel and ask yourself, actually, have I failed to prioritize Christ in my thinking? Have I, have, I, have I made plans and done so with purely myself in mind? You see, this is what James goes on to say in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. And so there's to be a recognition of God's absolute power and authority, not just over our lives, but over all things. There was a um, theologian in times past called Albert Kuyper. And he said, there is not one inch, not one fragment, not one piece of this world that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, doesn't look at and say, mine. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so... How are we recognizing a submission to the Lord's will in the plans that we make for our lives, in the purposing of our lives? Now, we live in a season when we know that life is, was it one of them commentators, life is a funny old game. Life is a funny thing. It's full of unexpected twists and turns. We see that on a major scale socially, right? So... We have remain, Brexit, vote. We're out. Everybody's astounded. Even the people that campaign to go are astounded. And people are like, whoa, did that actually just happen? Like, I, I remember watching the news and seeing people just shell-shocked. Just like, Boris came out of his house, chief campaigner. He was silent. He just had this bemused look on his face like, I better go and try and work out what's going on.
The unexpected happened. The U.S. have been welcomed to our world. <laughs> we are now anticipating the arrival of President-elect Donald Trump. <laughs> Apparently, Simpsons prophesied it, so it was going to happen, right? <laughs> yeah, Simpsons, the Simpsons show. 2,000 years ago. So, um, two, two, um, uh, um, ten, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been um, James Simpson and <laughs> Peter and John <laughs> Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Um, about 10 years ago. But the unexpected. And even when you have the collective power of, of people who are seeking and pursuing a certain outcome, it doesn't necessarily go the way that is anticipated or expected. Now, um, some of you know that I had a, a, an interview this week with Premier Radio where I had the opportunity to talk about um, our life as a church and the things going on here. And it was the day of the, the vote. It was the day of the, um, the, the result. And so, invariably, there was going to be the question, what do you make of? And I kind of, I had thought about it, I anticipated it might come up. And my, my natural inclination is first and foremost, or my, not say my natural, but my inclination I'm given to first and foremost thinking about how does the Bible respond to this? It's all well and good, everyone can give their opinion, how does the Bible respond to this? And the Bible says in Romans 13 that those who are in leadership are appointed according to God's ordination. And so that's what I said, you know what, it's, it's, it's an appointment according to God's ordination. And obviously, there's something that God is seeking to do in this nation through his appointment. Can you fight God? Now, again, we see God flex his sovereign power and authority. In Proverbs um, 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but what? It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And it doesn't really matter how many people have signed up to the plan. It doesn't matter how many people are in agreement with the plan. Nonetheless, still, it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so we say, if the Lord wills. Now, this isn't supposed to be one of those kind of Christian cliches that just roll off our tongue without any meaning. Um, sometimes in the same way that people might say, in Jesus' name. So, I, I heard something um, on an occasion where somebody was decreeing and declaring the prosperity of their children and they shall be prosperous, and they shall be fruitful with plenty of children. And, and after every decree, there's, you know, in Jesus' name, following, as if that is the sealed affirmation. And then, as this was going on, there was the condemnation of other children. But nonetheless, in Jesus' and the. No one shall rise to surpass them, but they shall all fall at their feet in Jesus' name. I'm like, hey. Um, I don't know if we can do that, you know. I don't know if I can add my amen to that. And, and, it, and it went deeper than that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, there's a problem when we have this sort of attitude that just saying this phrase is some kind of magic mantra like abracadabra that is going to seal and confirm everything that we say. Because we simply say, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And so, if the Lord wills isn't just a, a cliche catchphrase, but it has meaning and it has substance. It's to be said with the recognition that God is sovereign. That he is over all and above all. And that we as people are subject to his power, even those that don't know him. 
Now, I do remember a time, and uh, there's probably a few here as well who, if you're a little bit aged in the faith, you will, you will remember the season, when if the Lord wills became a dirty word. That, that was like a phrase that was um, anathema. My gran was sick um, for many years, and, you know, we would often pray for her healing. And, you know, as I was just wrestling with this whole experience and wrestling with Scripture, and, uh, you know, I considered this, this truth as to the will of the Lord. And so I would pray, Lord, if it be your will, don't pray like that. Don't say that. Negative confession, thank you. And I was being rebuked for saying, if the Lord wills. It is the Lord's will for perfect healing and wholeness and wellness. It is the Lord's will. And so I said to myself, hmm, I need to really work through this because we know that healing has been provided through the atoning work of Christ. The scripture speaks in more than one place of the fact that by his stripes we were healed. We understand this. We also appreciate if we look further that there is first an inner wholeness that is being speak, spoken of. Jesus spoke of the fact that a person must be born again, that we must be a new creation. And so there is an inner healing that takes place that is of much greater significance and importance than an external healing. Because ultimately we know that we are going to shed this body and receive a new glorified body, as the Bible tells us. So what happens in the temporal is not as important as what, has happen what happens in the eternal. So I'm working through this. But nonetheless, I was being pressed. It is the Lord's will. You do not speak such, such negativity if the Lord's will. It is the... And I'm like, hmm. Okay, so I understand that. In due season, all that the Lord has purposed and all that the Lord has provided will be fulfilled. Ultimately, it will be. There will be perfect healing and wholeness. But it just might be later rather than sooner. It just might be in the eternal realm as opposed to in the temporal realm. And so, whatever the sickness, whatever the condition... Once someone has received inner wholeness and healing, they can know that it is God's will for them to experience the completion of that process in time to come, when we are united with Christ to dwell with him forever. But during that season, there was this dismissal amongst many who even claimed to be preachers of the gospel, preachers of God's word. There was this dismissal of the biblical view of delayed gratification. I don't want gold when I'm in heaven. I'm not going to need it then. I want it now, says the preacher. Distorting the gospel. Shifting the emphasis and focus of the gospel on merely being a means of fulfilling material once, or as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, godliness is a means of great gain. It's just a means to an end, to get what you want out of life. A very helpful verse, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. And so we see that there are those things that God has revealed. We can be confident in them. We can walk in them. And yet there are things that God has not revealed concerning his will. Specific things, secret things that God will fulfill. And very often, those things relate to not the what, but the when and the how. You see, there are certain desires, 
certain things you've committed to God in prayer. There's certain things that you have um, sought to pursue and you've not seen the materialization of that and you felt disillusioned and you've, you felt discomforted, dismayed and all the other kind of disses you can think of. And maybe it's not such that the Lord isn't going to fulfill that. Maybe it's just not yet. The times are in the Lord's hands. Jesus himself said to the disciples at his ascension. And so, don't be discouraged as you seek God and you pursue plans. Trust in his will to be done when you don't see it happening right here and now. Because there's the potential of running the risk of becoming like Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God that he will be blessed and he will be the, the father of nations and through him all nations will be blessed and from his seed, from his son, but he had no children. And he was old. 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 99 years old. And so Abraham's there thinking, well, I can't really see how this is. This is kind of taking long and I'm not getting any younger. And... um. You know, things don't work the way they used to. And so, how long am I supposed to wait? And his wife's of a like mind. Sarah, and she's like, you know what? Take my handmaid. Go in unto her and bear a son. So Abraham's probably surprised at the fact that his wife's offering him another woman. But he goes and he has a child, Ishmael. And that was the beginning of sorrows. <laughs> you see, rather than wait on the Lord, rather than wait on God to fulfill his promise, he acted in his own um, estim estimation, according to his own motivation, according to his own power. As we used to say, he acted in the flesh. And he had this child who became the father of what we know to be the Arab nations and with whom Israel have been in conflict perpetually throughout the generations. And all of this came from Abraham's one decision of impatience. So God had promised. He had promised a son. He had revealed his what, but he hadn't revealed his when. And Abraham in his impatience took up his far self. And yet we can do this, right? Rather than wait on the Lord, rather than trust him, could take matters into our own hands and create problems for ourselves. Problems that can even be lingering problems. And so we see, when we say, if the Lord wills, we're recognizing that God is in control, not just of what happens, but also when it happens and how it happens. And there are things that we ought not to try and trouble ourselves to search out because we cannot know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's only revealed on a need-to-know basis, and we don't need to know. And so it's not been revealed. And what it does is it puts us in a place where, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do nothing but trust God. And that's the best thing we can do. Trust God. Now, this is what this is all about, right? Bonafide faith. Real trust in God. What does it look like? It looks like a people who are ready to trust God, even when the things that we plan and purpose are not coming to pass. Even when things are going in a different direction, we don't throw in the towel, we don't forsake the Lord. I just, I was, I was listening to a new album um, that's just come out by a, a Christian rapper called Bizzle, and the album is called Crowns and Crosses. I commend it to you, it's great listening. 
Um, and he's got a song on there, and I'm not that familiar with the album yet, so I couldn't tell you the name of the song. But there's this concept where he talks about the fact that very often when money's low, people forsake the Lord. And he kind of circulates around this theme for a little bit in this verse. And he said, you know, I've never stopped to ask you, but is, is that where you're at? When, when, when money's low, now he's talking about guys in the, in the community and the culture that he's come from. When money's low, they're not thinking about praying harder. They're not thinking about going out and, you know, working in McDonald's or whatever. They're thinking of going out and making easy money on the street selling drugs and whatever else that they would do to make quick, fast, and easy money. And knowing that temptation exists, it's like, so where are you at? When your money gets low, will you leave the Lord? All of us find ourselves in places where we will face the temptation either to be impatient, or to simply forsake the Lord in pursuit of our own desires. In pursuit of the fulfillment of our dreams. But there's an encouragement here. Because when James says, if the Lord wills, it suggests that actually the Lord has a plan and purpose concerning your life. That he knows who you are. He has a plan and purpose in mind for you. And so this isn't just a kind of general, random, well, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. C'est la vie. What does that mean? Anyway? C'est la vie. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mean whatever. That's not what he's saying here when we say, if, if, when we say if the Lord's will, we're not resigning to the fact that nothing's going to happen. Maybe, if God feels like it. No. Actually, it's saying that God has a plan and a purpose for you to walk in. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose. And so, basically what James is saying, look, trust in the fact that God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you that is bigger and better than your own plan and purpose for yourself. Know this. Be encouraged. Trust him. Because he has a vantage point. He has a wisdom. He has an understanding. <laughs> as an understatement, that far surpasses ours. And even when things don't seem to make sense to us, trust me, God is not confused. And so recognize, when we speak, we understand that there are certain things that are plain, when we say, if the Lord wills. We are certain, there are certain things concerning God's will that are plain. We know that it was God's will for Christ to suffer, to die and be raised again on the third day. We know it was God's will for him to ascend into heaven, to, for him to send his spirit on the earth, to establish a people called the church, through whom he would be a witness and a light to the nations, fulfilling the promise to Abraham, Look how many years after. <laughs> Fulfilling the promise to Abraham. And we know it is God's will that Christ will come again. We know it is God's will that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the people of God. But how that works out, specifically in each situation, when these things that are yet to happen take place, These are things that we don't understand fully. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul said, Right about now, we see through a glass dimly. We're looking through a darkened window. We're looking through a hazy mirror. We're looking at a hazy mirror. 
We don't have full understanding right now. But there will come a time when all will be revealed. All will be made plain. All will make sense. So let's make plans. Doesn't mean that we ought not to make plans, but we ought to make plans that are submitted to the Lord and seeking his pleasure and glory. Because that's what our lives are to be about. In verse 16, he says, you're boasting, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. To make plans apart from submitting them to God and seeking his will is absolutely arrogant. Prideful, self-assured, and evil. That's what James says. Strong words. Evil, you know. To make plans apart from the God apart from the Lord, apart from God, to seek our own will is arrogant, proud, boastful. Now, I want you to think about it in these terms. Imagine your house, you leave it in the um, care of a house sitter. You're going away for a couple of months and you know, you'll be back in due time. You've left somebody there to look after the house and um, until you come back six months away. Your house sitter is in your house. You're gone a week. They're looking at your house thinking, you know what, I could really do something with this place, you know? You know what? I, I, I think if I was to kind of knock out all these walls and... Um, even knock out the walls of the garden. Just, let's just make it through, like a, just a whole, a whole open plan experience. Go into the bedrooms. Why are there so many rooms in this house anyway? Like, who needs three bedrooms? Let's just knock out all the walls and make it an open plan experience so that we can be a, a closer... They, they, they really appreciate just having a closer knit family. And they make these plans, start talking to surveyors, architects, drawing up diagrams, start talking to builders. But they've not said a word to you. How would you feel? These people are making these plans, and yet they've not spoken to you as the owner of the property. It's your house. You imagine you come back to see the builders walking in, sledgehammers about to take walls out. Are you going to be polite? <laughs> I know I wouldn't. Are you, exactly, bruv. Are you mad? That would be the first thing coming out of my mouth. Like, you see the fingers? They don't have the right or authority to be making plans concerning your property. For them to do so is absolutely arrogant at, at the least. Selfish, inconsiderate, and all of the other things you could say about that. And yet, we would do the same with lives that are not our own. Our lives are not our own. Our lives don't belong to us, they belong to God. And so how could we even propose to make plans apart from him? How could we make plans that don't even, we don't even consult him? We don't even consider how they align with his will and his purposes. We're just making our plans because they suit us. How arrogant is that? And so this ought to lead to a heart of submission where we say, Lord, my life is not my own. To you I belong. Have your way. 
let your will be done. And again, it's not that we ought not to make plans. As the proverb says, many other plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And sometimes we pursue plans even against the will and purpose of God. Because we think that that thing that we're pursuing will be better for us. Will be the, and it might be a good thing, but the Lord says no. Now, James sums it up in the last verse. Whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And at first I thought, this is kind of random. It just doesn't seem like it fits the flow of, of this text. And it just seems like it's one of those verses that just comes out of the blue. Like, where did that come from? And he even, has, he even says, so. So he's connecting it to what's just been said. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him. I'm trying to think. Plans. Vapor. Uh, the Lord's will, boasting, whoever knows to do the right thing. And yet, what's the underlying factor? The underlying factor is, will you trust God? Because you know that God is trustworthy and you know you ought to trust him. And if you don't, that is sin. To not trust the Lord is sin. In our planning, in our considerations, in not submitting to him and having confidence in him is sin. The Apostle Paul says a similar thing in Romans 14, verse 23. And he concludes the verse by saying, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's Romans 14, 23. For whatever, this is how the verse, whatever does not proceed, that does not originate from, spring from faith is sin. It is a sin not to trust God. It is a sin not to trust the Lord in our planning. It is a sin not to trust that even when he overrides our plans as he has the authority to do, even in ways that do not satisfy us, it is a sin for us to rebel against that. It is a sin for us not to trust that he's in control and to submit to that. Now, does that mean that we don't face adversity and challenges with a, a, an effort to overcome? It doesn't mean that. You could be somebody who was arrested falsely and you've been taken to court, charged under false pretenses, and you're innocent. Does that mean we just say, okay, well, this is obviously the, the will of the Lord, and so, you know, if the Lord's going to help me, he will do that, and if he doesn't, then that's his choice. I'll just go with it. No. You fight the case. And you may even be found guilty. Does it mean that you therefore don't appeal? Well, that was the Lord's will. No. You follow it through to the fullest extent. And yet you might get to the end of the road and at that point in time there's no further to go. And it's evident that the Lord isn't opening the door, opening the door or, or changing the situation. Even in that, that doesn't mean that you ought to give up hope. But just continue to trust the Lord. Continue to trust. Sounds like a far-fetched situation, right? But then look at Joseph. It's exactly what happened to him. Falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. 
This was after all of the madness that had already happened to him when he was sold into slavery by his brothers and left for dead. And yet in the midst of it, he ends up president in the Pharaoh's house. And in Genesis 50, he says, that which the devil intended for evil, God intended for good. Even through the, the hardship, how many years in prison, forsaken, sold out even by the, his, his cellmates. Yeah, when you get out there, Mr. Baker, remember me. That, still there. Opportunities seemingly passing him by, but God had not forsaken him. God has not forsaken you. God is with you. He has a will and a purpose and a plan for your life. And so, in your desperation to see your wants fulfilled, do not make the mistake of not relinquishing control, giving up control totally of your life to God. You may be single and have been desiring marriage. And uh, the how and the when may have eluded you. Continue to trust God. Not just that it's going to happen, but trust that even now in your single state, he is with you and working out his good pleasure according to his will and purpose. Parents desiring to have children. Struggling. God has not forsaken you. God is with you. And as you pursue those options, trust God. Parents with children. <laughs> Wanting to see them raised, healthy, productive, fruitful, going through challenges. God is faithful. Continue to trust him. Don't throw in the towel. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.